Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi, everyone. Today, we're talking about how to navigate everyday decisions in our world of endless choice. And to lead this conversation, I am joined by renowned American author, speaker, and psychologist, Barry Schwartz, who wrote the famous bestseller, The Paradox of Choice. This episode is one of a few of our most popular conversations to date that I will be resharing over the next couple of weeks as we prepare for new episodes this October. And considering the fall season is a period of transition and reflection, I thought this episode would be the perfect one to share as Barry and I talk about how to approach decision-making with ease. Barry argues that our abundance of options is impacting how we make decisions, and he shares studies to support how limiting our choices can make us better off. You will learn about two common approaches that guide our decision-making, including maximizers and satisficers, and how taking the approach of a satisficer will leave you feeling less stressed and more decisive. Be inspired to simplify the decision-making process and start reaping the benefits of a calmer and more fulfilling every day. So thanks again for being here today. Your book, The Paradox of Choice, is one of my all-time favorite reads. I read it many, many years ago, and I read it for a second time recently, and I said to myself, oh, I have to interview Barry. Well, you're very kind, and uh, I'm glad you found the book worthwhile. You know, I wish I could say that thanks to the book, people have changed the way they live. But as near as I can tell, the problems I wrote about are worse now than they were then. Yeah, and and that's what I want to get into because you wrote the book back in 2004. Yeah, there was, you know, I mean, the internet was barely a thing. I mean, it was a thing, but it it hadn't taken over people's lives in the way it has now. And of course, COVID made that all the more pronounced. So yes, I will try to answer your questions. Okay, perfect, perfect. So to get started, in your book, The Paradox of Choice, you talk about freedom of choice and decision-making in our industrial society, and you share studies to support how choice is good, but too much freedom or excess choice can cause decision fatigue or paralysis. So can you share a study that supports how today's, what you call, explosion of choice can discourage us from making decisions and how we are more likely to make decisions when there are less options? Sure. So the classic study, which I write about in the book, which actually prompted the book, is uh, the study where um, a fancy food store put a new product on display uh, so people could sample it. It was a jam, an imported jam. And one day they had 24 different flavors on display. And another day they had six. And they kept track of how many people sampled and then how many people bought And what they found is that more people were attracted to the display when there were lots of options, but one-tenth as many people actually bought. Mm -hmm. And the explanation was they couldn't figure out which damn jam to buy. They just threw up their hands and they walked out. There have been lots of studies along those lines over the years. It doesn't always happen. And it, 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 some people it happens to more than other people. And in some domains, it happens more than in other domains. So what we can say is when it's a hard decision, complicated decision, too many options is more likely to produce paralysis than when it's an easy decision. It's like, well, duh. 
And when you don't have clear preferences, it's more likely to happen than when you do. And, you know, if you have clear preferences, then having lots of options just means that one of them is going to meet your your needs. And as soon as you find it, you pick it. And that's that. And so there's a sense in which, you know, being able to shop on Amazon is good because you're trying to match your preferences with items. And in a brick and mortar store, you're not going to be able to do that nearly as well as you can on Amazon. The trouble is that most of the time we don't have clear preferences. Mm -hmm. We have semi preferences. You know, I care about fuel efficiency and reliability in a car. Beyond that, show me what you got. Well, once you once you enter the world that way, you never buy a car. Right. So there are very few domains where our preferences are clear enough that having these this huge set of options is a benefit. So there's been, a, you know, it's a, still a controversial idea. The kind of economic orthodoxy is that if what I said was true, there'd be a whole bunch of retailers catering to people who are overwhelmed with options by giving them fewer options. So the fact that that hasn't happened must mean that I'm wrong. <laughs> I, think, I think that's not true. First of all, the, the, the uh, supermarket that people are happiest shopping at is Trader Joe's. Yes, <laughs> especially and, in the States. You know, yeah. It's got a great atmosphere to it, you know, with everybody wearing Hawaiian shirts and the prices are good. But I don't think that's why. I think the reason why is that it isn't torture to go shopping at Trader Joe's. And it is torture to go shopping, say, at Walmart or some other gigantic retailer. So, so I think people live with having all these options, but they're not happy about it. And I also think there's a kind of ideology that more choice is always better than less that we have essentially adopted so that when we suffer, when we struggle, we, we don't attribute it to being overwhelmed with options. We attribute it to something else because how could it possibly be bad to have so many options? So I believe it's a real phenomenon and it happens a lot and we could do uh, ourselves a favor and our customers a favor by making the choice process a little bit less torturous. No, absolutely. And we also have control over that by living more intentionally. So before I adopted a minimalist lifestyle, I was overwhelmed by the number of options we had, especially I would say leaving university. I'll never forget. It was the first moment in my life where my parents were like, oh yeah, okay. So you decide, you decide, go left or right or go this way. And then I said, oh gosh, it's so hard. And I remember my mom saying, oh, you can't make up your mind. And I was like, well, because I have many, many options right now. And it's great to have options, but again, it can cause paralysis. And then I adopted this lifestyle and it kind of refined all of the options that made sense for me because I really focus on, or we really focus on living by what's most essential. So there's the essentials and then there's the non-essentials. So when it comes to the essential items, I know, okay, I only need this and this and this. So if I go to a supermarket and I say, okay, well, I'm going to shop for organic, less processed foods, then it cuts all these aisles yeah. out, right? Which, which is helpful. But there are industries where <laughs> choice is now like you now have choice, for example, in the healthcare industry, which you mentioned, how too much choice can also be burdensome because the doctor now says, hey, you have 
option A or B. And it kind of puts you in a position where you're like, oh, well, I was hoping that you would make that choice for me because, (laughs) because, you know, that's a lot of, that's a lot of responsibility to put on myself, especially for my health or, or my family member's health. It's a huge responsibility. And here's the person who's the expert telling the person who doesn't know anything, it's up to you. I mean, it, it's like it's crazy. And in the, in the case of healthcare, this, this kind of work had not yet been fully developed when I wrote the book. You know, in the U.S., they introduced a prescription drug plan for uh, people on Medicare, people who are 65 and older. So you could um, get significant government subsidies for your drug prescriptions. But because of the ideology, free market ideology in the U.S., the idea that there would be a government plan was unacceptable. So what they did instead is they encouraged insurance companies to create plans and offer them to customers. So each state offered a menu of prescription drug plans uh, for senior citizens. In some states, there might have been a half a dozen. In some, there were as many as 50. Hmm. Now, understand, seniors were getting thousands of dollars of subsidy you wouldn't have thought you needed to push people into accepting this benefit. But in states where there were lots of options, you did have to push people because they couldn't bring themselves to figure out which plan was the right plan. And of course, any plan was the right plan compared to what they had. You know, you could have just taken a dart and thrown it at the list of plans and chosen whichever. But, you know, so they started threatening penalties. If you don't sign up by a certain date, then your benefit will be cut by X percent. To nudge people into accepting free money from the government. It was just unbelievable that this happened. And, you know, there was an easier way to do it. You could have you had a kind of canonical five plans that um, the federal government provided that maybe states could tweak a little bit but without expanding them. And then you wouldn't have tortured people. Mm-hmm. So, so you're right. You know, and I don't think the ideology is as strong about choice and freedom anywhere else in the world uh, to the degree that it is in the United States. So, you know, going to college in Canada mm-hmm. is not a thing. You know, most people go to the local university. Right. Yeah. In the United States, it drives kids and parents completely crazy to try to decide what school is the right school for my precious little jewel. I mean, it wrecks high school. And uh, and I think it creates enormous unhappiness and anxiety among adolescents. It seems like such a momentous decision. Somehow there is a right answer, but they don't know how to find it. Mm -hmm. And it's just a nothing issue, by and large, for, for people in Canada. Mm-hmm. because the options are fewer and there isn't this model that where you go to school is a big choice. This is true. And it wasn't until I started traveling throughout the States that I realized that. But in Canada, it was like, oh, okay, there are like three or four options for me. But in the yeah. States, there's <laughs> so many options. Exactly. So I, can't, I can't imagine. And this myth that somewhere out there is the perfect option. Right. And your job is to find it. I think we'll get to this point uh, a little bit later in our conversation. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. You you said a beautiful quote in your book. You said, well, the majority of people want to have control over the details of their lives. The majority of people also want to simplify their lives. So it's the idea of having choice, but within limits so that we're not feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. Now, in your famous TED Talk titled The Paradox of Choice, which I should add has 60 million views, over 60 million, incredible. You share how even when we make a choice within an abundance of options, we'll feel less satisfied with our choice than we would be if we had fewer options to choose from, which is fascinating. So what are some of the psychological factors that leave us feeling sure. less satisfied? Sure. So so having an overabundance of, of, of choice creates three problems. One, which is what we've just discussed, is that you get paralyzed. So even though you're free to choose, you can't pull the trigger. The second is that you're more likely to make bad decisions because decisions are complicated. And when you're trying to weigh multiple factors with regard to multiple options, you're going to make mistakes. But the third, if you overcome paralysis and you make a good decision, is that you end up feeling less satisfied. And the question is why? And the answer, I think, is a set of, a set of process, psychological processes. None of them are inevitable. but my sense is that they all sound eerily familiar to people when I talk about them. If there's anything wrong in, in any little way with the option that you choose, how regretful will you feel about your choice? Well, if there were three options, not so regretful. If there are 30, more regretful. If there are 300, more regretful. It's so easy to imagine that one of the options that you rejected or didn't even look at would have been better than the one you chose. So the bigger the set of possibilities, the more regret we will feel at any little uh, disappointment in the option that we choose. Uh, relatedly, missed opportunities, even if you don't think you made a bad choice, if it's not perfect, you know, if there's another option that had some feature that your uh, the one you chose didn't have, you, you know, I made I bought the right washing machine, but that washing machine is more energy efficient. You know, why couldn't my washing machine have been as any energy efficient as that one? It wasn't a mistake, but, you know, the perfect option was there to be made and, and they didn't make it. So missed opportunities, which, you, of course, you can, you know, you can feel that even if there are only two options, but you're less likely to feel that way with two options than with 20 or with 200. This is incredibly uh, relatable. I'm just, it's going through my mind. Everything I buy is like, oh yeah, but that other item could have done this. Or Exactly. And I'll tell you, you know, in pan the pandemic and in the digital world, I'll tell you where I, I find this most prominent. Uh, and it didn't exist when I wrote the book. And that is Netflix and other streaming services. You know, I can't tell you how often I who should know better, and other people decide to sit down and watch a movie at night and they look at what Netflix has to offer or, or Amazon Prime, it doesn't matter, and they spend an hour and a half going through all the options <laughs> and then they just watch Friends reruns because they can't decide which movie to choose. You know, A, it's incredibly infuriating and frustrating to take so much time to choose a, a, you know, a diversion for a couple of hours. And then you end up not being able to choose it. And if you do choose it, you know, if, if, there's, if it's overly dramatic or overly violent or not as funny as you thought, you know, you kick yourself because surely one of the alternatives would have been better than the 
one that he chose. So I, you know, I think Netflix paralysis is the new uh, salient manifestation of, of choice overload. And it's fixable. It is. Yeah. It's totally fixable. Netflix could fix it by not showing you 2000 options. You know, there, there is on most websites, there is a show all button. Uh, and the first piece of advice I give people is never click that button. <laughs> yeah. No, but I it's real, it's a, te- you know, you talk about adopting a, a, a simplicity, a, sim- a simpler lifestyle. Well, it takes incredible discipline to adhere to that when everything in the world is pushing you in another direction. Oh, and it's so refreshing when you can disconnect yourself from that mindset. Uh, admittedly, however, when it comes to Netflix, I am that person. I end up sliding through all the options and think about all that wasted time, right? So, and, uh, and you're yawning and you go, well, I guess it's time to go to bed. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or, or I go on to do something else. So, yeah, but no, I completely, um, yeah, I think a lot of people can relate to that idea. I so, do too, but it's really hard to do this on your own as a deliberate decision when the world keeps throwing temptations your way. So for example, if you are um, religiously observant, this is certainly true, you know, my own religion with Judaism, which sort of tells you everything about how to live your life day to day, hour to hour. Well, then all the options are, off, most of these options are just off the table. You make one big decision. I'm going to be an observant member of my of my faith organization or I'm not. But once you make that one big decision, all kinds of decisions get made for you. And I think that people find that more attractive nowadays than they did 25 years ago, partly because it's a way to solve the choice problem. And it's not all on you. You know, you sign up for it and now someone else is basically telling you this is how people like us live our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, half a century ago, that would have been repugnant to people who are trying to elbow their way into more freedom of choice about how they live their lives. Well, you give them what they asked for, and now they want somebody basically to put their arms around and simplify life for them. Yeah, I mean, that's an example of uh, my parents, you know, the baby boomer generation. It's like, oh, wow, they didn't have, I mean, they eventually got more and more and more. And they're like, okay, let's collect all these items. And now they just want to declutter their lives of all those things. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too much. You know, this old saying, be careful what you wish for. Right. Yes. (laughs) No, very familiar with that. So how can we interact with our overload of options with more intention or lessen the trade-offs, the comparison traps that our choices keep their level of attractiveness? Mm -hmm. Well, there are several things. One is, it's not bad advice, uh, I don't think, to, uh, to tell people, don't just do something, sit there. And what I mean by that is before you start shopping for something, and that something can be a job or a vacation or a brand of cereal or a romantic partner, before you start shopping, ask yourself what it is you actually want, what matters. And that can dramatically simplify the set of options. And I think we're too lazy or too preoccupied to do that. What we hope is that we'll go out and see what the world has to offer And that'll help us figure out what we want. And of course, it does help, but it also introduces this burden 
because then you're in this, you know, procedure where you just look at one option after another, after another, after another, hoping to get your own preferences clarified. Mm -hmm. So step one is figure out what you want. Put the time in, sit there, eyes closed, and imagine what kind of washing machine you want or car or job. Second, take advantage of something that we tend to um, uh, disparage, which is habit. If it worked yesterday, it'll probably work tomorrow. You know, buy the same cereal. Why? Just because there are 200 in the store doesn't mean you have to go through them all. Right. right? (laughs) You like your cereal? Just keep doing it. Life is complicated enough without you sitting there pondering what cereal to buy every time you shop for groceries. That used to be me. I love my cereal. (laughs) A related uh, issue is take advantage of your friends. You need a new cell phone. Instead of doing the research, which can be exhausting, talk to a friend who recently got a cell phone. Do you you like it? Yep. Get that cell phone. Mm -hmm. How big a difference do you think there is between models of cell phones? You know, it's really, we're we're basically hair splitting. They're all amazingly, spectacularly capable. You know, they all get reception. They all have a million other features. They download apps. What the hell difference does it make? Mm -hmm. But you get this feeling that there is a best cell phone and damn it, I'm going to find it. And that leads me to my last recommendation, which I think is the most important. Strike the word best from your vocabulary. It is a huge mistake to be looking for the best. It is much more, much bit wiser to look for good enough. Right. So in my book, the, the terms I use are maximizing only the best genes, the best job, the best college, and satisficing good enough. And what it means to say you're looking for good enough is not that you have no standards or even that you have low standards. You can have high standards. But the point is that as soon as you find something that meets those standards, you stop looking. Mm-hmm. And if you're out for the best, when do you stop looking? Never. Oh, no matter- yeah. You will continue and continue and continue to look for the absolute best. And I have a great example of that. So one of one of the downsides, well, first of all, I want to mention that I highly recommend a needs and wants list before you buy anything. So have those lists planned out. And then figure out what kind of, like, for example, let's say I was buying a phone. Okay, I want a phone that does this and this and this. So refine it down before you actually physically go up and look for it and buy it. So a little story is living a minimalist lifestyle has definitely improved my life in so many ways. One of the things is because I am always looking for what's most essential, when it comes to the point where I have to buy a new essential item, I end up looking for that perfect version of the item because I only need one of that thing. And so what happens is I end up buying the thing and then I return the thing and then I buy it again and then I return it again. So an example is I was looking and my co-host loves to make fun of me. I was looking for a winter coat a year ago and I ended up buying two and returning them both, buying a third and ripping off the tags so that I couldn't physically return it. <laughs> so it's like we have to do this. And 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 another example is sometimes, especially with websites like Sephora, so there's so many skincare and makeup options. And then once I refine it to something, I'm like, oh great, I, I'm looking for this. But then you scroll down and there's a bunch of reviews. 
then there's negative reviews. Yep. Now you're looking at the next item. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. My wife and I, I think, have a difference of opinion about what to do, make of reviews. In my experience, reviews are always mixed. You know, there's always some sour person who's going to trash something. But once you see that one review, you think, well, only an idiot would buy it on the base after you read that review. So I don't know whether reviews actually are helpful because, you know, you're never going to get all fives. And what really sticks in your mind is the, is the one review that slams the product. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't think it, I think it's not bad to get that information, but it turns out to be much less helpful than, than we think. And especially since we don't know anything about the people who are writing the reviews. Right, exactly. But like in this scenario, for example, back to the winter coat scenario, in that scenario, I was acting like a maximizer. I was looking for the perfect version of this coat. And then finally, I told myself, okay, this is good enough. But I should, I've learned my lesson through that experience that just find what you're looking for and just stick with it. And don't think about the other options out there. And I'm able to compartmentalize that, which is really good. But I'm hoping you can briefly explain why it's more beneficial to be a satisfizer and where perfectionists fall. Because I tend to be a perfectionist and a lot of people do in this lifestyle. Sure. Well, first of all, let me just say about satisfying, about about looking for good enough. The way, when I talk about this, the way people often hear it is that I'm giving them advice that they should settle. Now, in, in the world I travel in, when somebody says settle, that is not a neutral description. That's a criticism. What they're saying is you're just settling. And it's, it goes against the grain to settle when there might be something better out there. You know, I mean, if, if somebody were to suggest that you should find a life partner, settle on someone to be a life partner, you'd go, what? You don't yeah. settle when it comes to something like that, you know, but if you don't settle, then you end up living your life alone <laughs> because, you know, there's bound to be somebody better out there somewhere. So just keep on looking. Um, I think dating apps have had this effect on people. You know, no matter how good the person you're with is, knowing that with a, just with a flip of the finger, you, you can look at another and another and another and another. It, it sort of poisons your willingness to stay in relationships so that you can develop them and actually learn about the other person in the ways that matter. You know, you don't find out about people from reading profiles. You find out, find out about people from getting to know them. But why invest that kind of time and effort when all you have to do is keep flipping and see more options? So settling is not a neutral term. And it takes a lot of work to convince people that good enough is almost always good enough. And as I say, it doesn't mean having low standards. Uh, The critical insight here is is that when you're out for the best, you have to do exhaustive search. The only way you know that you've got the best is if you've looked at every option, which is essentially in the modern world impossible. Possible, yeah. Uh, whereas with a satisfying approach, you don't need to look at every option. You just look until you find one that meets your standards. And if your standards are low, then you'll find one quickly. If your standards are high, you may have to look at a fair number, but you're going to take that coat 
because it meets your standards and not worry that there's another coat out there somewhere that's even better than this one. But it takes, as with all these things, as it sounds like you've learned, it really takes a lot of discipline and practice to actually live your life this way because the whole world is pushing you to live your life in a different way. So you second guess yourself, you lose discipline, you know, well, you know, I'm going to have my simple lifestyle, but in this one decision, I really need to find the best. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of backsliding. You look around. It's very hard to convince 18-year-olds that there is no best college. Right. (laughs) In fact, it's close to impossible. I have tried it with students. I have tried it with my grandchildren. Somehow there is the perfect place for them, and damn it, they're going to find it. And of course, they go to wherever they go and they end up disappointed because it isn't the perfect place. There is no perfect place. And there are probably 20 other places that would have been just as good and they could have flipped a coin. But, you know, I've given up on trying to convince 17 year olds. I always like I always like to say you you can find the good in all those experiences or those choices. But it takes work. Mm hmm. And if you're, you know, there's a cartoon that I show of a young woman with a, wearing a sweatshirt that says Brown, very prestigious American university, Brown, but my first choice was Yale. <laughs> Love it. Now, if you've got that on a sweatshirt, then chances are you've also got it in your head. And if you've got it in your head, you're not going to put the work in to making Brown the best place it could be for you. This is true. Yes. You're so second-guessing yourself is just the enemy of getting satisfaction out of, uh, out of the decisions you make. Because almost always, the amount of satisfaction you get is partly dependent on how much work you put into extracting what's good. And why would you put in that work if you go around thinking, I'd be so much happier at Yale, I'd be so much happier at Yale. Yeah, I know a a lot of people will. And that is mental clutter. It's you're holding on to that idea that's better than the choice that you made. I'm also happy that you brought up modern dating and dating apps. I think that's an area a lot of people struggle, especially millennials. You know, it's always looking for the next best thing. But I think the problem there is people are trying to find everything and not realizing that it's about developing something with someone who has the qualities that you're looking for. There's not the person's not going to, you're not going to find everything. Just like we're not going to find our passion. We're going to develop it. That's exactly. I think you, I, I couldn't put it better. I think that's exactly right. We think when it comes to romantic partners, that it really is about discovery. It's about finding the right person. And that's wrong. Mm -hmm. It is about finding a good person and then developing the kind of relationship that you imagine a fulfilling long-term relationship needs to be. So it is not a a hunt. And the more time you spend on uh, hunting, the less time you're going to spend on nurturing. And, and the result is we end up with relationships that are really, in a fundamental way, unsatisfying. There's a very funny comedian named Aziz Ansari. Right, yeah. And he wrote a book, a wonderful book called Modern Romance. That was a kind of his account of what it's like to be an incredibly attractive, desirable, potential romantic partner living in Manhattan. And the conclusion he came to is that the availability of endless options was the enemy of establishing the kind of relationship that he was looking for. It was not his friend. 
Now, you know, if you live in a town that has 300 people, you're probably going to want more options than that town is going to provide you. Uh, so again, it's not like you should eliminate choice, but there's some sweet spot where you have enough options that you can find someone that suits you and your own desires and values, but not so many options that you will spend your whole life looking. Right. Uh, and and the, the, the example of someone who keeps looking and swiping, swiping, swiping is a maximizer. They're trying to yep. find her absolute perfection. And then there's those who see the qualities that they're looking for and they refine it to a few people. And I guess we would, we could call those satisfizers because they're going to go out and develop those relationships. So where on the scale would perfectionists fall? So the distinction I make in the book, and it's just my, my intuition and, and the labels don't matter so much. Uh, when I think of perfectionism, the critical thing is there are two aspects to this. One is having very high standards. Obviously, perfectionists have very high standards. The second is whether they actually expect to meet those standards. And so, you know, my, my example um, in talking about this is the basketball player, Michael Jordan, who many people think is the best basketball player who ever lived. And by reputation, he was incredibly hard on himself and his teammates. No matter how good he was, no matter how well he played, he could see what was wrong with his game and what was wrong with his teammates' games. So in that sense, he was a perfectionist. No matter how well he played, he could play better. Okay. And that drove him to put all kinds of effort into developing his own skills and developing the skills of his teammates. However, knowing that he never played a perfect game did not stop him from getting satisfaction out of playing the game as well as he played it. In other words, he knew that the standard he aspired to was not achievable. And so he didn't evaluate his achievements by comparing them to his ideal because he knew that his ideal was unrealistic. And so one view of perfectionism is you have incredibly high standards that you know you can't meet. They're important to you because they keep you striving, they keep you working, and so on. On the other hand, if you have those standards and you expect to meet them, then everything that falls short is gonna be disappointing. Mm. So the distinction I make in the book is that maximizers have incredibly high standards that they expect to meet, and perfectionists have incredibly high standards that they don't expect to meet. And if that's your attitude, then failing to live up to the standard is not going to deprive you of satisfaction for having done as well as you did. Uh, it's only if you think the best is, is uh, achievable that you're going to end up beating yourself up for anything that falls short. Okay. Now, now how do you cultivate that in yourself? That's, I can't answer. That's a hard one. Well, you say, do I want to be the perfectionist who it just, it, perfection just acts as a light or a fire under, under me to motivate me. But I, I, I'm not, I, I know that it's not achievable. It just, it just, it motivates me. It's a, it's a form of motivation. That's the trick. But, you know, just yeah. telling yourself that doesn't mean that that's how you're actually going to operate. Right, right. <laughs> Although you know, it's good to be mindful of it, right? So it is good to be yeah. mindful of it. But, you know, this, this uh, approach to therapy that has sort of taken over uh, in the last 30 or 40 years, cognitive behavior therapy, uh, what it realizes is that we do a lot of self-talk that really is destructive of our well-being. 
But it also realizes that just telling people that they're doing self-talk that's destructive doesn't make that talk go away. You gotta, you gotta develop an alternative and then practice, 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 practice so that it becomes routine for you to think about how your life is going in a less destructive way than the way you're trying to replace. You know, simply me giving you a, a mimeograph set of instructions for how to overcome your depression isn't going to change anything. Mm-hmm. It takes work. It takes practice. The practice is going to fe- make feel uncomfortable. It's not snap your fingers and all of a sudden you're living a sim- more simplified life and getting more satisfaction out of your decisions. Uh-uh. Practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And and another quote you said in your book, which I really related with is, uh, the more choices we have, the more effort goes into our decisions, which is true. And then the more we expect to enjoy the benefits of those decisions. Yes. And that's another point that, that we didn't get to. When there are lots of options, our expectations go up about how good the chosen option will be. It's inevitable. I don't know how you can avoid that. You know, when there are two kinds of genes, your expectations about how well genes will fit will be modest. When there are 20, they'll be less modest. When there are 2,000, well, now the sky's the limit. Mm-hmm. And, that, and so when you finally buy the genes, the question that you're asking is not, are they good? But are they as good as I expected them to be? And if the expectations keep going up, the answer to that question is always going to be no. Yeah, they're good, but they're not as good as I expected. I failed. Yeah, you you give the example of your jeans. You're like, oh, I love jeans. I've always worn a ton of pairs of jeans. But then one day I came across a jean store and I got that perfect pair. And then it increased my expectations about exactly. the jeans I like. So on that note, you, you also mentioned in your TED Talk that our increased expectations have increased our anxiety and depression. And you said, quote, the secret to happiness is low expectations. Yes. And I love that quote. It's hilarious. Uh, but it's true. We need to lower our expectations. I think I would, I, it was a bit of an overstatement. I think better to have said the secret to happiness is lower expectations. Right. You know? Not low expectations. We should make some demands of ourselves and of the world, but but reasonable expectations, lower expectations. That's right. I think that's right. And I think a lot of what plagues young adults as they make really consequential decisions about romantic partners and careers and so on is the sense that somewhere out there is the perfect job and mm-hmm. somewhere out there is the perfect partner and I can't find either one, what the hell is wrong with me? You know, everyone around me seems to be finding them. And, and social media is no help here. No. You know, if you look on social media, it looks like everyone on earth except you is living a perfect life. And so what you're asking is not only how am I doing, but how am I doing compared to the people I'm watching? Mm-hmm. And, you're, and the answer is always going to be, oh, my life sucks compared to those people's lives. What am I doing wrong? And I think all of this concern that has arisen in the last month or so about what Facebook does to adolescent girls in particular uh, is a reflection of this. You know, as bad as the body image problem was, it's much worse now because you have all access to all this data. You know, you're not just comparing yourself to the other people in your homeroom. You're comparing yourself to everyone on the planet. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we all look pretty dumpy when 
when we're comparing ourselves to everyone on the planet. And this is not something that 14, 15 year old kids need. I know. And, and thankfully, we can manage those technologies or, or the parents of children can manage those technologies for them, which is helpful. But uh, it is hard. Once your, once your kid becomes an adolescent, it be, I, I suspect, it, you know, it becomes a kind of all out war. And you have to decide whether this is the war worth fighting, since you can't fight a war about everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I remember my grandparents saying, hey, in, in the past, we just compared ourselves to our neighbors, uh, you yeah. know, the Joneses. What are they doing? And now it's we see everything. We also see all the ways we can live our life. There's mm -hmm. so many different paths we can choose from. It's endless. And again, it's paralyzing and it, it's, it's depressing. And, you know, we're, we're always pushed the idea that more is better and you're going to, you should want more and get more. Like you're not good enough. You're basically told you're not good enough and you need to yeah. buy these things. And so with this lifestyle, we've realized, Hey, no, like I've defined the lifestyle I want to live. I know the lifestyle I want to live. I've written it down. I've taken the time to disconnect from technologies to figure out what I want out of my everyday. And so that has helped me reject the marketing, whether it's online or just, um, just outside in the everyday. I can be able to say, okay, well, no, that doesn't, like, I can just ignore it, which is amazing. Like, I used to go into stores and just feel overwhelmed by all the things that are in the store. And I'd be like, wow, everything's so amazing. And now I look and I'm like, I don't need any of these things. Yeah. So that's, it, it's, it's adopting this mindset that's really, really helped me lower my expectations and become more decisive and satisfied with my choices. No, I think that's all great, but it does, but it does take practice. Mm -hmm. And, and there's another thing too, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to ignore that sometimes being exposed to how other people live is really liberating. You know, you may suffer from a kind of poverty of imagination about what's possible because all you're doing is looking to your left and looking to your right. And the people around you seem to have relatively narrow views about what their future life will look like. And so you encounter someone who's living a different kind of life in a different place and it sparks aspirations that are really good. So, you, you know, you, you can't just say choice is bad. It's not right. it's just that there's a downside to it and figuring out what the sweet spot is and how to manage uh, our options so that we're mostly operating within in the region of the sweet spot is what makes it so damn hard. You know, if more choice is always better than less, then that's an easy social problem. Just keep throwing choices at people. If less choice is always better than more, well, that's also an easy social problem. Just restrict people's choices. Well, neither of those is true. There's a sweet spot. Finding it is hard. Uh, it's worth the effort. And we, each of us has to do it for ourselves. There's no formula that says give people eight options. That's the perfect number. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, you know, it may be the perfect number for you, but not for me. It may be the perfect number for you when you're buying jeans, but not when you're looking for uh, cell phones. So it's a complicated, difficult problem that we have to keep solving every day for ourselves and for our fellow citizens. It's worth the trouble to try to solve the problem, uh, but it's not easy. It's not a snap your fingers and, and tomorrow is going to be the first day of the rest of your life.
Right. But we really need to refine the options out there for ourselves. But also maybe big brands and big companies will start doing that. Hopefully we see a trend in the next few years. That would be incredible. I mean, I'm hopeful that companies will adopt that mindset and say, hey, let's give them five options of X product, not a hundred so that they're not overwhelmed. Because again, the studies prove that people are more likely to purchase that item if there are less options. It is possible that this massive supply chain problem that we're reading about will force manufacturers to go back to the way they did things half a century ago because they simply can't produce the variety of goods that they used to produce and get make them available to people wherever those people happen to be. So streamlining, so uh, increasing the reliability of the of the supply chain may require that you streamline the things that you're trying to put through that supply chain. Uh, so that may be one of the lasting effects of the pandemic. And, and you know, from my point of view, it would be a benefit mm-hmm. once people got used to not being able to choose from 200 pairs of jeans. Right, right, right. I always like to say, think about it as there's essentials and then there are nice to haves. So there's things that are essential to our lives and there's things that you know, they're not essential, but again, they would maybe add to your life. And so that really helps with decision-making as well to say, okay, what category does this fall into? And is that a need? So, and is there an area in your life that you do that? Like, is, or, like I do it in everything. You do? Okay. But it was sort of my style going in, you know, often you find that psychologists, right, end up doing research on their own particular things that have plagued them in their lives. And in my case, this was never, this was never an issue. I didn't have the terminology uh, to describe it, but I have always been a satisficer with respect to pretty much everything. Hmm. Uh, It's never seemed to me to be worth the effort to go hunting for the best. And as I thought about this more and read about it more, I came finally to, to the belief that it's, it's a false God that there is no best. So even if you did think it was worth time and effort, you're, you know, you're looking for a unicorn. It Mm -hmm. doesn't exist. Um, But in my case, it's just never been uh, much of a problem. I love that mentality. There isn't a best. Just be satisfied. I mean, my, my my dad always says, just, just be satisfied with your decision. Don't, don't look back. Just, just be okay. Just move forward. And I, I I do love that mentality, but considering like as a millennial, uh, many of us, we've delayed decision-making, especially on life, big life decisions, like the path we're going to take, whether it's with our career, marriage, children, and, and a lot of us, again, that we've delayed those decisions. And I think it's because of today's overload of options and need for more time to make the right choice. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. Okay. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I, with something as big as that, it, I think it's, 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 it's simplistic to pin it all on one cause. But I do think that um, that uh, the sense that somewhere out there is the perfect and that's what you should be looking for contributes to the basically postponing of adulthood. And, uh, you know, it's what's weird about it is people who do this sort of research talk about how a typical person is going to have six careers in the course of a life. And so you commit yourself to doing something. And it turns out five years later, you decide you want to do something else. And the world accommodates you. 
you know? So it's not as monumental a decision as you think it is at the time that you're making it, which means it's not as important to get the perfect, get it perfect the first time, you know? You change, you learn, you develop. It was the right job when you were 22. It's not the right job now that you're 28. It's right. time to think differently about your work life. That's an okay thing in the world. You know, the rich world, the first world accommodates that. But, you know, but I do think that at least in part, the deferring of big decisions comes from this, A, that there are so many possible ways to live my life and B, one of those possible ways is the perfect way and damn it, I'm going to find it. <laughs> We've also, I, I, I feel, uh, I should say this, we have really put an incredible burden on women by by giving them somehow this illusion that it's possible to have it all. Oh yes, that's a whole conversation. <laughs> it is and and it is not possible to have it all. When you know when when I was a young faculty member and we had young kids, we would often hire college students to babysit. And you know, my wife is an academic, I'm an academic, we're we're raising two young kids and here we are, we have it all. And so we, we created this aspiration on the part of the students who were, were coming to babysit that this is what they should aspire to. We didn't realize we were doing this. You know, the thing about being an academic is you get to make your own schedule. Right. Yeah. Except for, you know, half a dozen hours a week where you have to be in a particular place. You can work 60 hours a week or 80 hours a week, but you can do it on the 60 or 80 hours that you want. Right. Yes. That's not true of lawyers. That's not true of doctors. That's not true of stockbrokers. That's not true of anybody except academics. So, you know, eventually we, we realized that we were creating this set of aspirations that were not achievable on the part of these young students. And we, we started actually making a point of telling them how hard it was to try to have it all and what it took in, in, from, in cooperation from the outside world to make that even uh, imaginable. And the flexibility of our work is the only reason that we were able to have successful careers and be decent, responsible parents. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they were not going to find that available to them if they went to a professional school and took a normal civilian job. Right. Um, but uh, so, I, and this was all on women. You know, the men never expected to have it all because the burden of family, even now, is overwhelmingly on the shoulders of women. Yeah. Um, you know, it was even more so back then, but it's still that way. So imagine going through life thinking that you can have a fulfilling, intimate relationship, wonderful, happy kids, and an incredibly flourishing career. Right. Simultaneously, without having to cut corners or make sacrifices, mm -hmm. you might as well just jump off a cliff now. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. Huge pressure, huge yeah. pressure, and it's a lie. It's just a lie that we've told women. Yeah, it's it's. Oh, you can do it all. You can do it all. Oh well, I've seen someone do it all, but you don't know what the. It, it, maybe they're doing it all, but they're also depressed or they're full of stress. They're unhappy. Yep. Right. So they're all of those things. Yep. 
Yeah. So there's always a downside. So, so no, I'm, I'm glad that you confirmed that for me because I, I'm going to communicate that to my mother. <laughs> That's why we take more time to make certain life choices. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm curious uh, what practices, I mean, maybe that you adopt that could be helpful for our listeners to feel less overwhelmed and more decisive today. Well, uh, all right. One is always remind yourself that good enough is good enough and stop looking for the best. In other words, keep your expectations and aspirations modest. Another is to rely on habit. And uh, often the decision you made yesterday will be a perfectly fine decision today. You don't have to reinvent the wheel on a daily basis with respect to everything. Take advantage of information you get from your friends about decisions. It's not a bad thing to copy what your friend did. It's a good thing. You know, you want to clear the workspace so that the things where you don't have a model to follow, you can devote the time and energy that it requires. Uh, You know, regret less. I don't know how to teach people to regret less, but uh, not no regret. Regret is an important emotion. We do bad things, we should regret them because it might stop us from doing them again in the future. You know, things that are hurtful to other people in particular. So, but manage regret. And appreciate that most of the decisions we make in life, we get to make again and again and again and again. So if we get it wrong the first time, we can get it righter the next time. Mm-hmm. I think you, you, know? you talk about reversible decisions in your book. Yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, and um, it, it, people like to have reversible decisions, but they don't end up reversing them. So, so it's, a, it's a kind of, um, it, it, it's a kind of illusion. Because, you know, you like a store with liberal return policies, but overwhelming majority of people don't return things. They just sit in a closet somewhere, even though they could return them. So it takes the pressure off when decisions are reversible, but it also stops us from doing a number on ourselves to convince ourselves that the decision we made was actually a good one. Right. If you can't reverse it, then you find a way to live with it. If you can reverse it, you never find a way to live with it, but you also don't reverse it. So it's like the worst of both worlds. Yeah, and that's why I ripped the tags off my winter coat. <laughs> that, was very, that was very wise. There are stores that where even that won't. That, I mean, their return policy is so liberal that it's not even clear what you can do. There. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. that they won't take it back. Uh, my, my co-host and I, we just pretend that there isn't a return option. So it's, it's, it's very helpful. It's very helpful. But, very uh, helpful. But Barry, thank you so much for our conversation today. To close, I thought I'd end with my favorite quote in your book that really sums up our conversation today. And that is, you say, choice within constraints, freedom within limits is what enables us to imagine a host of possibilities. So well said. So I wish I had said that. Oh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) You sure did. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. And and for those of our listeners who haven't watched your TED Talk, I highly recommend it. So where can our audience connect with you and find this book and all of your writings? You know, the the book is available. I, I don't have a website. I mean, I have a website, but I don't do anything about it. So if you just type my name into Google or go on Amazon, um, you can find all my books listed. Um, I think all the TED Talks are available on the TED website and also on YouTube. I am hard not to find. (laughs) I 
I trust that your listeners have all the ingenuity they need to find me if they want to. Exactly. Just just go to Google. Simplify it. <laughs> just go to Google. <laughs> all right. Thanks again, Barry. And I'll talk to you Take soon. Care. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. That was my conversation with famed American author, speaker, and psychologist, Barry Schwartz, who wrote the book, The Paradox of Choice, and other bestsellers, including his recent book, Why We Work. And you can learn more about Barry and his writings by checking out the links in our show notes. And if you enjoyed this discussion, please let us know by sending us a direct message on Instagram or Facebook at Millennial Minimalist, or by sharing this in a story. This is one of our top rated episodes to date and other similar episodes that may interest you include my conversation with New York Times bestselling author Gretchen Rubin in episode 120 and our discussion with top minimalist thought leader Joshua Becker in episode 126. And to close off today, I want to take a moment to say a big thank you to all of you who have taken the time to write us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. As you know, your reviews really motivate us to continue to put out more content and they help us bring on more exciting guests like Barry. And as always, you can learn more about us by checking out our website at mastersimplicity.com or by following us on IG or Facebook at Millennial Minimalist, where we share simple living quotes, lifestyle photos, and ongoing podcast updates. So thanks again for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.